0: We're going to finish off what we started last weekend in Second Samuel chapter 6, a passion for the presence of God. There was a couple who had been married for just about a year or two and they were getting things really tough. They were constantly bickering and fighting and arguing. And so they decided, we need to go and see a counsellor. And so they go into the counsellor's office and the counsellor sits them down and she's at one end of the sofa and he's at the other end of the sofa and the counsellor says, so tell me what's wrong. And the guy just sits there with his head down saying nothing. Well, the, the wife, she launches in 10, 15 minutes. She doesn't stop. I married him. And before we were married, you know, he, he showed me so much affection. And he did this and he did that. But now that we're married, he he, he he ignores me. He never tells me he loves me. He never gives me any attention. He's always out with his friends at the football. He never tells me how beautiful I am. He never shows me affection. He never shows me devotion. He never shows me... And he kept going on like this for about 10 or 15 minutes. And after about... Uh, 10 minutes the counsellor got up and he went over to the wife and he grabbed her by the shoulders and he gave her a big massive kiss on the lips and then he went and sat back down again and he turned to her husband and he said your wife needs that twice a week and the husband turned to him and said I can have her here every Tuesday and Thursday if that's what you would like Passion cannot be delegated. Passion can't be delegated. Intimacy isn't something that someone else can do for you. And we saw that last week. And we'll see it again this week. That intimacy and worship and passion and devotion and an expression of your heart, nobody can do that for you. There's many things that you could do for me, but you cannot worship for me. You cannot express devotion to God on my behalf. We saw last week that David eventually has become king over the joint kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And one of the first things he does is he says, let's get the ark back. Now, I'm not talking about Noah's ark. It was this gold box about four foot by two foot by two foot. And it contained the presence and the glory of God. God had chosen to dwell among his people in this ark. He had brought them through the wilderness. The ark went ahead of them as they crossed over the river Jordan. God wanted to dwell among his people. But the Philistines had started to catch on. There was something special about this. They thought there was something superstitious about it. And so they captured the ark 20 years before this, but it didn't go well for them. So they sent the ark back, but it ended up in the periphery of the country. It ended up about actually a day's walk from Jerusalem. And King Saul, he didn't care about the ark. He didn't care about the presence of God. King Saul cared about popularity and position and people-pleasing and performance And so the ark stayed on the periphery of the country while the people still came and worshipped. They went through the motions. They did it without the presence of God. And that's a picture of much of the church today. We go through the motions. We go through the religious rituals. We show up. We sing the songs. We do the thing. But the presence of God, the manifest, tangible presence of God isn't there. But then David becomes king and he loves the presence of God because he's a man after God's own heart. He's a man who has learned in the wilderness how much he needs God. And sometimes it's only in the wilderness places of our lives that we really come to understand how much we need God. When everything's going great, when life's just being blessed, sometimes we can soon depend on ourselves and think, this is great because we're so great. But David spent time in 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 the barren, rugged wilderness looking after sheep. And whenever lions and bears would come, he would fight them. But whenever he wasn't looking after the sheep, he would get his little guitar-type instrument out and he would start to sing worship songs to God. And as he worshipped God, and as he lifted up the name of God, God came down. And David began to enjoy God's presence so much that he knew he couldn't live without it. He said, how lovely is your dwelling place. My soul longs, even thirst for the courts of the Lord. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And David had this hunger for the presence of God. And so as soon as he becomes king, he wants to bring the ark back from the periphery to the center. He wants the presence of God not to be out there somewhere. He wants the presence of God here. And we saw last week that he gets 30,000 men. And they, they go to this house of Abinadab where the ark has been for the last 20 years. And they go to bring it back. And his motives and his desire is right, but the method is wrong. Because he tries to put it on this wooden cart, because that's what the Philistines had done. In other words, what he tried to do was he tried to do God's work in the world's way. (laughs) He had watched the Philistines have success with the ark and the cart, and God hadn't seemed too bothered with that. So David thought, "Why don't I stick the ark on a cart and we'll bring it back? It'll be quicker than carrying it." And he puts it on the the cart, and it's a picture of how the church sometimes looks at the world and thinks, "Well, if that works for the world, why don't we just put a Christian sticker on it?" and try to do it that way but just christianize it a little bit but god's presence won't dwell on our best ideas god's presence won't dwell on worldly things with a christian sticker god's presence will rest on the shoulders of his people who are consecrated to him and that's the way it was always meant to be done the ark was always meant to be carried on the shoulders of the priests the levites so that nobody would touch the ark and as they're coming along, they're doing okay and until an oxen stumbles and the ark starts to slide off the cart. And it's in like slow motion. And this guy called Uzzah puts forward his hand to steady it. And as he touches the ark, he drops down dead. <clears throat> and immediately, the party's over. The party's over. Because what they had misunderstood, they misunderstood two things. The sinfulness of humans and the holiness of God. And that's something we still misunderstand today, isn't it? We don't really grasp how sinful we are. And we don't really grasp how holy he is. And when we don't grasp how holy he is, and we don't grasp how sinful we are, we get casual with God. See, here's something. I wrote this in the newsletter this week. That actually, Uzzah was Abinadab's son. In other words, the ark had been in his house for 20 years. And I wonder if he had just become a wee bit casual with the presence of God. It had just always been around his house. And he had stopped treating it as something very special and very holy. He had just got used to it. And we need to see how unholy we are. And how holy he is. And his holiness, his perfection, and our unholiness cannot mix except for the blood of Jesus. Jesus. Apart from the blood of Jesus, we cannot come near to God. Apart from the blood of Jesus, like Uzzah, we are dead. But because of the blood of Jesus, a way has been made. Because of the death of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago, and because of his resurrection, we can draw near to God. There's no walls, there's no barriers, there's no fear, and there's no shame, and there's no guilt, because Jesus has paid for it all. Anyway, Uzzah is struck down dead and that ends the celebration. David is angry. Everybody's scared. And this is where we left it last week. And they now treat the ark like it's nuclear. They treat it like it's radioactive. Nobody wants to go near it. Look at what happens next. Verses 9 and 10. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. David was afraid of the Lord that day. In other words, he recovered a fear of the Lord. And how God's people need to recover a fear of the Lord. I'm not saying we should be afraid of God. But how we need to stop being casual with God. He's not the big man in the sky. He's not our big buddy. He is the God of heaven and earth. The eternal one who will judge the living and the dead. How we need a deep reverence and sense of awe and respect towards God, and much of the church has lost that. Yes, God is good. God is gracious. God is kind. God is compassionate. God is loving. God is forgiving. But he's still holy, holy, holy. Right now in heaven, the anthem is holy, holy, holy. 2,500 years ago, when Isaiah had a vision of heaven, you know what the anthem was? Holy, holy, holy. There's a song that never changes in heaven. And it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He is glorious. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is just. And yes, he is full of mercy and grace. But he is also a God of wrath and judgment who is coming one day to judge the living and the dead. I was reading just this week that the Church of Ireland... Held a pride service in Christ Church Cathedral, Dublin last week. A gay pride service in Christ Church Cathedral. And they were proud of it. How we need to recover a fear of the Lord in the church. When the church becomes like the world, God needs to bring judgment against the church. Because God, we said this last week, the world can get away with things that the church can't. Just like it's not my responsibility to discipline your child. Remember I said that last week? But when it's my child, it's my responsibility. We look at the world and we go, well, they get away with that. They love that. So why can't we? Because they're not his children. We are the children of God. And God loves us so much that when we're going down a path that's going to lead to destruction, God disciplines us in his love. Not to punish us, but to bring us back on the right track. The world will do what the world will do. The church needs to stop expecting the world to behave like Christians. That's what we do sometimes. We expect the world to behave like Christians when much of the church actually don't behave like Christians. The world will be the world and we're to be salt and light there. But let's not expect the world to do anything except worldly things. But the church, as the people of God, we are to be his people consecrated and holy on to him. May the Lord give us a fear, a holy reverence for his name. Anyway, back to the story. They don't know what to do with this ark. Everybody's like, you have it. No, you have it. No, you bring it home. No, you keep it. And nobody knows what to do. And then they turn around and they see this house by the side of the road. And they say, why don't we park it here? Park the ark. Let's park the ark here until we figure out what to do with it. And they essentially put it in storage in this guy called Obed-Edom's house. Obed-Edom is his name. Because they don't know what to do with it. And we're told that this Obed-Edom is a Gittite. That sounds like something my mum used to call me when I was a child. <laughs> Clean your room, you little Gittite. You know? Or words that rhymed a little bit like that anyway. Stop that, you wee Gittite. A Gittite was someone who wasn't a Jew, it was actually someone who was a Philistine. They were from the city of Gath. Do you remember who else was from Gath? Big guy? Goliath? So this isn't even one of God's people. But they knocked his door. He opens the door. They say, have you a spare room? He says, well, yeah. They say, well, would you mind looking after this box first? And he says, well, what is it? And they say, you don't want to know. And they say, he says, well, what should I do with it? And they say, just don't touch it. (laughs) What do you mean? Just don't touch it. And they leave this box in his house. Just leave it alone. And they go back to Jerusalem. And look at what we read, verse 11. I love this. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Within a few hours, Obed-Edom noticed there's something different in his house. There's a new atmosphere. He's like, Mrs. Edom, did you buy a new diffuser or something? Did you buy new scented candles? And she's like, no, no. He's like, there's a different fragrance in this house. There's something different about this house and his kids are actually behaving for the first time and his relationship with his wife which has been a bit strained is starting to get really good and he goes out to the garden and the crops which hadn't been great are starting to bumper crops and the, 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 the vegetables and the, the things have never looked so good and the, and the calves are and the, the animals are, 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 are amazing and, and his neighbors are coming around and they're giving him stuff and he's just starting to be blessed and prospered and people walk past his house and they stop and they say what is that and he says what's what and they said we were walking past your house and we just sensed something there's a presence here and over the next three months everything he touches turns to gold everything he touches is blessed and prospered and he begins to understand it's because of the box and they begin to realize that this box needs to be referenced this box needs to be treated differently and they get up every morning with an awareness of the box and they go to bed every night with an awareness of the box and when they get annoyed with each other and start to raise their voices they suddenly realize the box is there, let's speak better to each other and when when they're sick, their sickness disappears really quickly because they they bring it to the box and they bow before the box and they ask for healing. And they begin to realize there's something about this box and they don't know what it is, but they know there's a presence that they never want to do without. Things just keep getting better and better. There's something about the box. There's a presence with it. There's something special, sacred, almost supernatural about it and the point is this when God finds a house where his presence can dwell he will bring blessing and fruitfulness and life and joy and peace when God's people gather around his presence they experience his blessing and his goodness and his favor we don't seek the blessing we seek the blesser But as we seek the blesser, he loves to bless. Many of us still have this idea that God is reluctant to bless his people. That God is just waiting for us to step out of line so he can get his big heavenly hammer and bash us with it. That is the perception. God is a God who, if you look at the scripture, he says, I love to bless you. As you come into alignment with my will and my way and my word, I will pour out, ble- I will rain the heavens and I will pour out more blessing than you can contain. Guys, let's start believing that our God is a God who loves to bless his people when we are in alignment with his will and his way and his word. There's so much blessing on the house of Obed-Edom that it gets back to David. Look at verse 12. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has. Why? Because of the ark of God. So David went up to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So all of this blessing is happening and David's back in Jerusalem. He's trying to figure out over those past three months, what went wrong? How, what, why, why was Uzzah struck down dead? And he gets the priest to open the Bible, open the Torah, the Old Testament law, and they discover something, that it was meant to be carried by priests. It wasn't meant to be put on a cart. They discover that it was meant to be carried on the shoulders of the priest. And, and, and that's where they went wrong. That's how, that's how Uzzah died. And, and, and they say to him, by the way, have you heard about Obed-Edom? And he says, why, what about him? They say, that guy is just... Like blessed beyond belief. That guy is having his birthdays and his Christmases all coming at once. Like every single day. Obed-Edom is having the time of his life. He's never felt like this before. And the past three months since since we left the ark at his house, that guy has just prospered big time. He's been blessed in every way possible. And David's like, I've heard enough. Look at verse 12 again. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. He doesn't want the ark out there. He wants it close to him. He doesn't want the presence of God in someone else's house. He wants the presence of God in his house. And he says, let's go. Let's try this again. And let's try it right this time. Look at verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. When those who were carrying the ark not those who were wheeling the ark on a cart. They were carrying it. They were doing it the way God said it should be done. David goes to get it, and he does it right this time. There's humility there, isn't there? David has learned from his mistakes. I love that. I love that David was a king, but he was willing to say, I got it wrong. There's something about people who are just willing to own up to their mistakes that makes them attractive. There's something about people who are willing just to say, I am sorry I got it wrong that makes you want to forgive them. I was doing marriage prep a number of years ago with a couple and we were talking about conflict and how you handle conflict and all of that. And and I said, you know, who's the first one to apologize? Or what way does that work? And and, uh, the girl, the bride-to-be, she said this. She said, I have to be honest with you. That's a problem with me. I I never apologize and I never admit I'm wrong. And I said, are you serious? And she said, yeah, I I never admit I'm wrong. I I know it's an issue. And I looked at her husband-to-be who was sitting kind of sheepishly. um, And I said, is this true? And he says, yeah, she never admits she's wrong. And I said, run, son. Run. No, I didn't. Um, But uh, I said, you need to fix that. Like you need to sort that or you are going to have a really miserable marriage. Because in any relationship, there has got to be that sense of being able to own when you've done something wrong. In any relationship, you've got to be able to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. That's in a marriage relationship, that's in friendships, that's in church, that's in work. There is something about that humility where you actually just go, I was wrong. And when people do that, we tend to extend grace. When people can't admit they're wrong, that's when it's very difficult to go anywhere with that relationship. And David is a man after God's own heart and he humbles himself before God and he says, I was wrong. And I'm sorry, God, and I want to put things right this time. And he's jealous for the presence of God. And I was thinking about that day when they go to poor Obed-Edom's door and they knock on the door. He's been waiting and dreading this day for months. And he opens the door and they say, we're here for the ark. Can you imagine how he felt that day? Don't take my ark away. Please don't take this away from me. This ark has brought so much blessing to my house. It's brought so much peace to my house. It's brought so much prosperity to my house. But he knows he can't keep it. And I can imagine him and his wife and his children standing at the door weeping as David carries the ark away from his house and they make the journey towards Jerusalem. Because once you've experienced the presence of God, the tangible manifest presence of God, it is really hard to live without it. Once you've experienced the favor and blessing of God in your life, you never want to move from underneath it. Once you've known the reality of the living God in your life, why would you want anything else? And so he stands at the front door and he watches the ark being carried away. Let's finish up verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened (coughs) calf. They're taking no chances this time. Every six steps they take with the ark, they stop and offer sacrifices to God. Think about that. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop. Slaughter the animals. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop. Slaughter the animals. It's very slow, isn't it? But he had tried things the fast way, and it hadn't worked. And so now he's trying it slow. But there's something else going on here, because as they're slaughtering the animals, what's happening? And I don't mean to be gory, but there's a lot of blood being shed. Not just a wee bit of blood, there's a lot of blood being shed. And so every six steps are making a sacrifice. These sacrifices in the Old Testament, we know, were for sins. They were to atone, to cover over the sins of humanity before God. So every six steps, they're sacrificing, the blood is flowing, and then the blood is making a way for the presence of God. Every six steps, the blood is making a way for the presence of God. And we know that those Old Testament sacrifices were a type and a shadow pointing forward to what Jesus would do for us. That we can't come into the presence of God, that unholiness and his holiness cannot come together. But Jesus has gone before us as the author and pioneer of our faith. And he has shed his blood. And so as we come before God, his blood goes before us. 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 And his blood speaks a better word than the blood of animals and sheep and goats and lambs. That when we come into the presence of God, we only do so because of the blood of the perfect lamb who was shed Two thousand years ago, it's the blood that makes a way into the presence of God. It's the blood that makes us be able to come before a holy God with our sinfulness. It's the blood that makes us clean. It's the blood that brings us into His presence. Hebrews ten nineteen tells us this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. By the blood of Jesus. The most holy place in the temple. In the tabernacle. In the temple. Was where the the ark dwelt. The high priest could only go in once a year. But the Bible says this. Because of the blood of Jesus. We can go into the most holy place. We can go into the very presence of God. And not sheepishly. But with confidence. Why? Because we know that there's a man called Jesus. Who was the son of God. Who shed his blood. And through his blood we have access to God. Unhindered. Unlimited. Access to God. We can come with confidence because of what Christ has done. And we're going to celebrate that in communion in just a few moments. But let's keep reading. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. David is loving this. David is loving this. Look at him. He's wearing a linen ephod. That was the most basic outfit you could wear in those days. It was almost like an undergarment. In other words, what he did was this. He took off his royal robe, he took off his crown, and he wore a linen ephod. And what he is saying to the people is, before God, I'm no better than you. Before God, I'm no different than you. We're all sinners, and he is holy, and I am just like you. You know, that's why actually, if you research it, clergy... You know the way they wear the the cassock and the surplice, the gowns? That's why they originally started wearing those back in the day. It was to cover up their outfits. It was to cover up their own clothes. It was to take attention. I don't think it works like that today. But it was to take attention away from them so that every part of them would be covered except from the neck up. And it was to point people towards God. And that's what David wants to do here. David is saying, Today is not about me as your king. Today is about the king of kings. You see, I might be on a throne, but there's one who is on a higher throne. And I don't want you to be focused on me. I want you to be focused on him. And so he dresses down to the minimum and he's letting loose. He's dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And David had a lot of might. He was a mighty warrior. He's really going for it. He's letting loose and unrestrained worship. He's getting carried away, swirling and twirling and jumping and hopping. And he doesn't care. He's throwing in his arms in the air like he just don't care. And he's just so overcome with joy and worship and praise and gratitude. And everyone else, we're told, is shouting and they're playing instruments. It's loud. It's noisy. It's rowdy. It's boisterous because they're celebrating that the presence of God is coming. Coming among the people of God. What a contrast from the last time the ark was moved and Uzzah was struck down dead. You see, God might be holy, but he loves a good party. God might be holy, but he's not dull. The Bible says this In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. A fear of the Lord and the joy of the Lord go together. The more you fear and honor and reverence and worship God, the more joyful your life should become. The less sin and the less gunk and the less junk there is in your heart, the more joyful your life should become. God never came to make us miserable. He came to bring us abundant life. He came to give us joy in his presence. The most miserable people who are are those who are living outside the will of God. Christians should be the most joyous people on the face of the earth. We are not the church of the frozen chosen. We're the church of the living God, the one who said, I have come to give you life in all of its abundance. The world doesn't need to look at the church and look like we're sucking lemons and think, oh, I want to be like them. The, church needs to, the world looks at the church and goes, why are they so joyful when there's so much pain and heartache and devastation around us? Why have they so much peace? Why have they this deep peace and joy that I don't have? It's because we have the presence of God, not just around us, but we have the presence of God dwelling within us. Obedience brings freedom and life and joy. Don't let anyone convince you that God wants to make you miserable. That was the oldest lie in the Garden of Eden, that God was withholding something good. God wants to bring you joy, and joy comes through worship and reverence and obedience to his word. But not everybody is impressed by David's exuberance. Look what happens when he gets home to the wife. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. So this noisy procession begins to enter the city. The streets are lined with people. Everyone's celebrating. But up at the palace window, David's wife is looking. And she's watching And it says she despised David in her heart. I mean, that's a strong term. She despised her husband in her heart. Why is she so angry? He's the dancing king and she's the grumpy queen. Like, why? What's going on here? We're told a few verses later, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel... "...has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fella would." Poor David, he arrives home in great form and he's met with this, when he walks in through the door, pure raging and wife. Huh? He doesn't even say a word, she starts turning to him, what are, you th- what, what are you playing at? Who do you think you are? What was all that dancing and jumping about? Not very kingly that, you've let yourself down. You've made a right holy show of yourself." What will people think of you? You have a reputation to uphold. You're the king, you know. You're not meant to behave like that. You've become so common. Why would you behave so like that in front of the people? The people are meant to look up to you, not look down at you like that. You have a reputation to keep David. You're meant to behave better than that. In her mind, this was not how her husband was supposed to behave in front of other people. His worship was supposed to be dignified and distinguished, reserved and respectable not emotional and expressive like that. No, David, that's not how we do things. That's not very kingly. Here's the thing about Cal. She stood at a distance and judged how David was worshipping God. And sadly, we often hear similar comments today. People who think worship should be done a certain way And they stand at a distance and watch people who don't worship the way they think it should be done. And they criticize it and make comments about it. That's not very dignified. It's too emotional. It's immature. It's too expressive. That's not very Anglican. What's wrong with an organ and a choir anyway? It's too loud. They shouldn't have drums. Do they have to sing that long? I don't like these modern songs. What's that with the hands in the air? That's not how you're supposed to to have, behave in church. Robert Louis Stevenson, the author, once wrote this. I went to church today and I'm shocked. I'm not depressed. Because in his mind, going to church meant being depressed, or at least leaving depressed. And But let me, let me be honest, I kind of get me, here a little bit. Because when you've ever, only ever been used to seeing things done one way, Seeing things done a different way can unsettle you. I remember the first time I ever went to a charismatic church. I didn't even know what that was. I thought it was a type of washing machine. You know, I had my aerial automatic for the charismatic. And uh, I had been brought up in a very traditional Church of Ireland with a robed choir and a prayer book, and we chanted the Nunc Dimittis, and some of you are like, you know, the, the, the Vanity, the, the Te Deum. Remember those greatest hits? And... Uh, and uh, everybody looked pretty miserable and we wore our Sunday best. And, and there were really good people there, don't get me wrong. And I, I, I learned so much about Jesus from some of those people. But there was a very dignified way of doing things. And it was a very structured way of doing things. And it was stand up, sit down, stand up. I mean, you were sore in the next morning. It was like doing squats. Like. Um, and the, 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 the pews were so hard that you had a bad back as well. And, uh, but that was, what I, that was all I knew. That was my whole experience of church. And then when I was 16, the day I finished my GCSEs, I went up to the north coast with some friends, the Rainies. Some of you all remember Bilderd Rainey from the area who would have sung. I went up with their family at a wee house and we went to their church, Cool Rain Christian Centre on the Friday night. And we went to their church and I, we pulled up and I went, that's not a church. Because it wasn't a church building. I mean, it was like a, it was a converted factory. Like, I mean, how do you not meet in a church building? That was the first thing I thought. At least the factory was converted. Um, and, uh, and I went in and, Everybody was dressed fairly casually and the music started, I I mean the the drums and guitars and I didn't know any of the songs and people had their eyes closed and they were raising their hands and I'm like, what's going on here? And some people even spoke in tongues and prophesied crazy people and, and I just remember it was just so far out of my depth, like I just had no grid for this, like I had no grid for this. Because I had been, come let us sing before the Lord. And then these guys are doing this. and they're, they're, Some of them were even dancing in church. You don't do that. You did that in the coach back then. You didn't do that in the church. You can do it in the coach now. Um, <laughs> woo, woo. I preached there recently and it was great. Um, but uh, it just it freaked me out. Because I had no grit for this. But I remember thinking, there's something about this place. There's there's a presence in this place. And these people actually seemed to enjoy church. I mean, this was a Friday night. And they went back on the Saturday night that weekend, and the Sunday, I mean, for goodness sake. And they, they seemed to know the Bible, and they seemed to want to share their faith with people, and they seemed to genuinely love God. And so I came back that weekend, and I was thinking this. I was like, that was weird, that was different. But there was something there. And I really wrestled for a number of weeks through that. Because I knew there was a good presence. And I knew that they this was different, but they were good, godly people. And it was strange for me then, not because it was weird or wrong, but just because it was different. Nothing in my church background looked like that and I think that's really important for us to acknowledge. Just because something is different doesn't mean it's wrong. Just because something is different than what you have known or experienced doesn't mean it's bad or weird. It's just different. And the reason I say that is this. We have people in Hope Church here from every church background and no church background. We have people here who are Baptists and Presbyterian. We have free P's and R C's. We have Methodists and we have Pentecostals and we even have a few Church of Ireland in the room. <laughs> and I'm sure like for many of you when you first came in here some of it was strange. Why are they raising their hands? Why is it so loud? Why does Jamie preach for so long? And, uh, <laughs> but now that you've been here for a while it's become normal. It was different, it was strange, but now it's normal. And it's where you evidently are choosing to be because you're here. Because here's the key it's biblical. And that's always where we land. It's biblical to express yourself in worship. It's biblical to raise hands. It's biblical to make noise. It's biblical to let out a shout. It's biblical to show your passion from God. And if it's biblical, it's okay. In fact, it's better than okay, it's good. It might not be everyone's preference and that is okay too. But as long as it's biblical, as long as the desire is genuinely to glorify God, then let's just get on with it. And can I say to you that in this church, The desire is to glorify God. That is our only goal. That is our only objective and our only aim. It is to glorify God. Here's the problem with the story with Michal. And it's something we still see today. Because David's worship wasn't her preference, she looked down upon him and criticized him. It wasn't how she felt it should be done. It wasn't dignified enough. It wasn't formal enough. It wasn't respectable enough. And she wanted to write it off because... She had a reputation to think about. You see, she was a watcher while David was a worshiper. And a watcher will never understand a worshiper. A watcher will look at a worshiper and think they're mad, they're extreme, it's too much, they're too exuberant, they're too emotional. Because a watcher doesn't understand a worshiper. A watcher doesn't understand what's going on inside. You see, the Bible says man looks at the outside and God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. And she looked at David and she saw someone who was being too emotional. But David in his heart was simply expressing his worship to God. But a watcher will never understand a worshiper. It's a bit like, if, you remember when you were younger and one of your friends fell in love for the first time? And they were a total sap, remember? And they just, like, they just went on and on about this girl or this fella. And it was just like, they were just floating in cloud nine. And they were all over each other all the time. And it was like, boke. And it was like, catch yourselves on. And, and that was fine until you fell in love. And then you became boke too. Because you were all like, I love you. I can't you know, because a washer, a watcher will never understand a worshiper. Until you're there and it's in your heart, you never get it. And that's what's going on here. This wasn't planned. This wasn't forced. This wasn't a show. This wasn't a performance. This was a spontaneous expression of David's love for God. And that's why I love it. It wasn't mandated. It wasn't forced. I've been in places where they've tried to force it and I hate that. I've been in places where they've tried to whip people into a frenzy, and I hate that, and I've walked out of those places. This was just an overflow of David's passion for God. Can I say to you, you're never under any obligation and hope to do anything. We are not a cult. You are never under any obligation to worship in any particular way. I want to make that really clear to you. But I also want to say something else clearly. This is not a church where you stand back and watch. This is not a church where you just come to observe. Maybe you do that for a week or two, especially if you're not a believer. But this is not a church where you come in every week and just watch and make judgments. This is a church where we worship together as a family of God. This is a church where we participate. This is a church where we all get involved in raising our voices and, 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 and exalting the King of Kings together as, as, a, as a body of Christ. It's not a place where you come and judge the band at the front every week. This is a place where we worship freely. Hands up, hands down, I don't care. Eyes open, eyes closed, I don't care. Singing loudly, singing quietly, I don't care. What matters is, is it's coming from your heart. Worship means Worship. It's how much is he worth. And if someone were to watch you during worship, would they know how much Jesus is worth to you? That's all I care about. I don't care how expressive you are. And the key is this, not caring what the people around you think. Not caring what the people around you think. That was Michal's problem. She was concerned with what other people might think. It's interesting that three times in this passage, she's referred to not as David's wife, but as Michal, the daughter of Saul. Because what was Saul's problem? He was always concerned with what people thought. And the apple hasn't fallen very far from the tree. And that's why God rejected him as king. As far as Michal is concerned, David has embarrassed himself. But I love his response as I finish now. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me to be ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. It's pretty savage, isn't it? David doesn't shrink back. He doesn't say, I'm really sorry. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't, he doesn't take it back. He says, why are you so offended by my worship? Because it wasn't for you. Why are you worried what other people think? It wasn't for them. It was for an audience of one. And he says, you know what? I'll become even more undignified. If you think that was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet, girl. So why don't you just pipe down. because I love the Lord and it's for him that I'm worshipping it has nothing to do with you my focus and my attention my affection is towards him God's opinion is the only one that matters and then the last verse and Michal the daughter of Saul had no children till the day of her death you know some people read that as being a judgement from God and that's possible but it doesn't say that it just says she had no children you know what I think honestly I think after this, David just didn't want to be near her. I think after this, David went, if something so important to me means nothing to you, I don't want to be intimate with you. If something that I love so much, you despise so much, I I just don't, there's just nothing there between us. And I don't think, Mikal is never mentioned in the Bible again after this point ever, ever mentioned again. Why? Because those who stand at a distance and judge have no part in God's story. Those who stand at a distance and only observe but don't actually engage in true worship to God, God doesn't want them in his story. There's no part for them. God wants people after his own heart. Not perfect people, but people who love him and people who worship him. When the presence of God was in Obed-Edom's house, there was fruitfulness. There was abundance. There was blessing. When Michal closed herself off from the presence of God, there was barrenness and emptiness and lack. And my prayer for us is that we would become less self-conscious in our worship and more God-conscious. That we would be more concerned with what he thinks than what the people around us think. That we would be a people of his presence, living under his blessing and favour. And you know, when I finished university, I went to work in Ohio for a few years, and I went to a church there called Parkside, and the pastor was a man called Alistair Begg, a Scotsman, some of you might have heard of him. He would have spoken over here at New Horizon quite a bit over the years. And it was a very, very conservative church, Reformed Baptist, big church, but very conservative. Not a lot of expression in their worship, but I remember Alistair Begg telling a story back before he had moved to America. He was in Scotland, and he was uh, leading a church there and There was a couple who had started coming along and he, the guy was called Mario he was a hairdresser, and he, was, he started dating a girl who was also a hairdresser and The two of them started coming along, and they just didn 't really fit into this church, but they just they just loved God, and this was their local church, and they, they started coming along and Alistair talks about it being a Wednesday night prayer meeting and people were all assembled in the room and it was very somber and very serious. And They had decided to have a little bit of worship every week before the prayer meeting. And every week, as soon as the worship started, Mario was in the front row. No matter whether the songs were fast, slow or in between, Mario's hands were in the air like this. And he was worshiping God. And Alistair Begg says he was at the front and he could see the other people looking at this and they weren't one bit happy. And he said he had to make a decision in that moment because he knew Mario was a new Christian, and he knew these people were judging him, and he knew the harm that could do. So Alistair says, I made a decision that every time Mario raised his hands, I put mine in the air too. (laughs) Whether I felt like it or not, Because there are some things, he said, that are more important than what these people think of me. And he says, it may not have been my preferred way to do things, but that doesn't matter. Because I think God was pleased with my worship.